as I started here early this morning, I, I want to kind of give you a foreshadow a little bit too of, of the coming weeks. So um, if you remember, uh, at the beginning of the class, I kind of laid out eight time periods, and that was in the introduction. Um, and we're going to start the first time period, which is the age of Jesus and the apostles. Uh, it's one of the shorter time periods that we're going to study. Um, you're going to see a couple of critical things in this time period. One is the establishment of, of the church itself uh, in Acts 2. And I thought before we get into too far into studying the history of the church, we've got to understand what the church is and what it is not. Um, for those of you who are new to the class, I want to just clarify a couple things about this class. Um, one, first and foremost, is that this is not a class of evidentialism. We do not live by evidence. We do not live by scientific or historical evidence. We live by faith, um, and we take God's word as, as it is uh, in its black and white. We live by faith. We are, if you want the theological term, we are presuppositionalists. We presuppose God is who he is because he says who he is in his word. Um, it is nice that God has given us devices throughout history, uh, some you know, most uh, spiritually supervised like his word, but also even in some secular circles, um, as we'll see some this morning, uh, historical writings confirming the life of Christ and his ministry, it's all over. Um, but again, we don't take it as, you know, hey, it's a historical time and that's how we come to faith. We take it as... You know, faith through Christ, in Christ alone, um, and that not of ourselves, even as it's told in Ephesians. There's two sources, two primary sources that I've been using in this class. Um, one is uh, Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. You're welcome to get that. You can find it for a couple bucks on, on Amazon. And another one that I'm going to be relying on from time to time, um, and especially in this lesson this morning, if you don't have this on your shelf at home, this is one that you probably want. And I see a lot of you nodding your heads here. This is a really, really good condensed, and if you want an, you know, an easy-to-read biblical doctrine, uh, John MacArthur's uh, and, and uh, Dick Mayhew um, wrote this book. This is the third edition. I think it's probably less than 10 years old, but it's a great work. Um, on just a summary of doctrines, which are just biblical teachings, doctrine being a fancy word for, uh, for biblical or for teaching or for truth that is shown in scripture on things like the church or the ecclesia. So we're gonna look this morning first at defining the church, just reminding ourselves what is the church, what is the church not, and then we'll jump into, I'm gonna try to connect the dots from John the Baptist, to the death of Christ, and then next week, Lord willing, get into those events and how it established the church. So, I don't remember who asked the question about the church and the establishment of church, um, but I'm going to answer that here this morning. So, here we go. Defining the church. Let's jump into this. And by the way, if you're new in here as well, answer, ask questions. This has been, there's been great discussion already so far. Um, love that. Uh, as Rod always says, we're not on a, on a, uh, a school time frame here. We can um, 
we can scratch when it itches, something like that, whatever he says. We can pay attention to your questions um, as they come up. So defining the church. Throughout the New Testament, the church is primarily designated by the Greek word ecclesia. This is a term meaning those who are called out. And let me just pause here for a second. One of the difficulties, that, or one of the first doctrines, honestly, as I was exposed to, and, and my family, Amy and I, as we were exposed to expository preaching, verse by verse, line by line, book by book, one of the very first original doctrines that I struggled with was the doctrine of election. And I wanted to believe at some point in that, or that early on in, in, in that uh, phase or stage of my life that I, I had some choice in the matter. That I had, I chose Christ. Surely I, I remember choosing Christ. I remember repenting of my sin. And um, Well, I will tell you in that sort of uh, infant mindset, the Lord has helped me understand that, in, especially in Ephesians 1, 1, when he says, I chose you before the foundation of the world, well, guess what? He chose his church, and he established his church. Those who are called out, the very name, Ecclesia, is those who are called out. And thank the Lord in his wisdom and in his provision that he did that. I would still be stuck in my sin, pattern of life, pan, pa, sinful pattern of life, had he not called me out. So the Ecclesia in the ancient world um, referred to a group who had been called out to administrate civic affairs or to defend the community in battle. It was, uh, it was almost an office, for lack of a better term. It was used in general or in a non-technical way. It came to mean an assembly or a congregation. So if you were in, you know, uh, the time of Christ, and you, you use the word ecclesia, it might have been to describe a group or something you had belonged to. Um, of course, it came to mean something much deeper and much more significant. Let's go to one of these passages. This early uh, section here is going to be an, uh, it's going to be a Bible drill for sure. All right, so get your get your Bibles ready or your phones or whatever your copy of God's Word is in right now and get ready to turn some pages. So used in a specific sense in the New Testament, the church of God refers to a community of those who've been called out by God from their slavery to sin through faith in Jesus Christ. That's important. One faith, one God, one spirit, all the solas, okay? And I'm not going to go there now, but let's... Uh, if someone would look up Romans 1.7, someone go to 1 Corinthians 1.2. Uh, there's a bunch of them in 1 Corinthians 1.2, chapter 10, 32, chapter 11, 16, 22, and then finally in 15.9, we'll pause there. Let's read through these real quick. You're going to see this word. And by the way, the list that I have there on your page is not even close to exhaustive uh, throughout the, the First Testament. It, is, it occurs uh, far more times than this. So who's got Romans 1.7? To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Ethan. Great job jumping on that. You heard it there. Called as what? Saints. Called as saints. I used to have a problem with that word. Like, I'm not a saint. None of you are. Experientially, we are not. But in Christ we are. 
pretty amazing truth. Who's got 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2? To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Love it. To the church, the Ecclesia at Corinth. And by the way, all these examples that we have here are actual letters written to actual Ecclesia. Who's got chapter 10, verse 32? Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. There you go. To the Ecclesia of God, the called out of God. 11.16. I'm sorry, 11.22. Would you read that one too since you're right there? Right. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Yep, Paul right there having a few uh, come, to the Je- come to Jesus' words about the topic at the, in that chapter. But he, he addresses the church. He addresses the called out of God. Um, and again in cha- uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Who's got that? For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul persecuted the church of God, the ecclesia, the called out of God. Um, we know his story, right? His conversion. He was literally on the road to Damascus to go arrest and potentially um, uh, in, uh, jail uh, Christians, but was called out as an apostle to the church of God. And thank the Lord for his ministry. After we get to uh, next week, the death of Christ, we're going to see how the apostles, uh, Paul describes himself as the least of these, uh, one who is untimely. We'll get into that a little bit, but he couldn't have been more timely, quite frankly. How about Galatians 1.13, to the Ecclesia at Galatia? Galatians 1.13, and then someone can look ahead at 1 Thessalonians and the 2 Thessalonians verses that we have there. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God, beyond measure, and try to destroy it. There you go. Couldn't be more clear than that, as I just mentioned. Paul's mission was to persecute, to destroy the church of God. Instead, God called him out to start some churches for God. How about Thessalonica? The the Ecclesia at Thessalonica, chapter 2, verse 14, and then 2 Thessalonians 1-4. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. There's an awful lot there. Um, But again, the church of God at Thessalonica called again. And you see this, this concept comes out in all of these verses. The concept of election, the concept of being called to the church of God. You know, and, and John MacArthur writes in his, in his biblical doctrine, I'll just talk to you about this, and I, when we're done with these verses, I'm going to read a, an amazing poem that was written by a Puritan uh, preacher in the late 1800s. But um, it is the sweetest, it, it is the sweetest remnant, it is the sweetest and greatest um, institution, which sounds like such a cold word. Let's just say establishment that Christ left for his people post-death. 
Um, it, is the, it is the time that we look forward to uh, each week. It is not the building, as we'll get into, but it is the people who God called out to fellowship together. And we see that time and time again come out um, in these verses. How about find it? Let's, uh, did we read the 2 Thessalonians 1 4? Let's do that one, and then someone can get Romans 16 16. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So, the church of God enduring some hardships um, in, in, that, uh, in that section, but we have our Lord who is faithful, Christ the cornerstone of the church, which we'll get. How about Romans 16, 16? Salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Don't have to do the, the holy kiss. Um, in fact, please don't. Um, but it is, a, it is an expression of endearment, an expression of love within the church. It's, a, it's an expression of fellowship, right? Would the seven churches be included into this? Seven in Revelation. In Revelation 7. The, the believing, the church, yeah. the believing right. ones. Yep. It's a good question. Did you hear his question? Um, <clears throat> I've told Pastor Rod, actually, this is one of the studies that I want to do some time down the road on the seven churches. Um, just study that. Um, don't get me sidetracked, Roger. Yeah. The point is this. Um, the yeah. point is this that uh, he asked if would would it include the seven churches? It would include the ones who are still believing, functioning, called out churches. Um, there's pretty clear. What I want to say, pretty clear description about some of those churches in those chapters in Revelation that some have lost their way. So the church, the true church, the called out are those who are in Christ, who are uh, the elect, um, not those who would um, merely profess or those who would live contrary to, uh, to even these scriptures, the ones we're reading. You know, we live in the Laocene age, yep. you know what I mean, and it appears that that church really lost its way. Sure did. To the point where God says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And you don't even yeah. recognize. Yep. Yeah. Good point. Well, let me read this. Um, I wasn't going to, but it's too good to not read. This is written by Samuel Stone. He doesn't have a lot of published works. Um, he was a, a preacher in the mid-1800s, early 1900s. Um, but here he wrote this about the church's foundation. He calls it, the, it's entitled, The Church's One Foundation. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation... Yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. And to, the, to one hope she presses with every grace and due. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, 
and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth as union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord gives us grace that we, like them, the meek and the lowly, on high may dwell with thee. I love that poem. It takes really the church through its entire history from its consummation to ultimately its fullness and glory. Um, and the, obviously the one thing that all have in common is Christ's death, resurrection, and resurrection. So, it's been written, a lot of ink has been spilt. Unfortunately, most of it worthless. Most, some of it good, thankfully. The Ecclesia consists of those whom Christ predestined in eternity past, called and justified in this present life, and promised to glorify in the future, just as Stone wrote in his poem. Go to these two verses. Uh, would someone pick up Romans 8.30 and then someone Ephesians 1.11? And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So I'm going to assume those of you who are in Christ here this morning have been through most of that progression, save one, which, which is what? Glorification. The glorification. So you were indeed predestined. You were chosen. Uh, Paul clears it up in other passages too that we were adopted as sons. Uh, we were made legal as his sons. And then we were chosen and then we were uh, ultimately will be glorified. I look forward to that last part, don't you? Ephesians 1.11 In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There you go. Nothing happens outside God's will. Not our salvation, not the establishment of the church, not the direction of the church. Um, it is all in his will. Isn't that comforting? The church is not a physical building. It is not the bricks and mortar. I don't know about you guys, when I was little, I hated going to church. I hated it. Um, the best family fights in my house were Sunday mornings, by far. Um, I got more spankings on Sunday mornings than any day of the week. I'm not, this is not an exaggeration. If my mom or dad were here, they would they'd tell you. Drug out of bed, kicking and screaming, finally went. Um, hated it. I thought it was boring. Um, didn't like my Sunday school teachers most of the time. Probably didn't like me either. <laughs> um, but sometime around, you know, age 13 or so, you know, thank the Lord that that shifted. I became aware that I was a sinner and headed to a hot place. The church there, though, is not a physical building. It's not where Christians meet, nor is it the religious institution. It's not an ethical organization. It's not a socio-political association. Rather, the church is an assembly. Or it's a congregation. It's a called-out set of people called the redeemed. It's those who have been called by God the Father to salvation as a gift back to His Son. Let's read this. And, and this is, there's no coincidence that these verses about the gift, the church being a gift, back to the Father occurs in John. And I want you to think about this for a second, all right? 
switch on, switch on your brains here. Why this topic? Why the church being a gift back, from, you know, purchased by, by Christ, right? His death, burial, and resurrection being a gift back to the Father. What is the great theme or one of the great themes of the book of John? The gospel of John. That Christ is who? That he is God, very God. And so, bought by Christ, saved by Christ, bought by Christ, Paul says you were purchased with a cost, and then ultimately to be given back to the Father without spot or wrinkle. Now, that's a pretty amazing gift. So let's go to John 6.37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Who does he give? Who, who, what is the subject here? Church. The church. The believers. The believers sitting in church. How about this one? John 10.29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. An eternal security verse. If you ever needed that, if you ever have doubts, right? The devil, uh, Peter describes them as the fiery darts of the devil. These are doubts. These are, these are things that creep in. Um, this is not a gift with a, uh, with a gift receipt. This, this is not a gift. This is not a... a Something that is taken back that can be won and then lost. Um, this scripture is, is crystal clear on the fact that the Father has them in his hand and nothing can snatch, them, snatch the believer from the Father. Great comforting verse. How about John 17, 6? I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. There's present and past tense here. They were given, they are being kept, and they're being preserved. How about, uh, Mark, would you read verse 9 as, as well, since you're there? 17.9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Wow. Wow. Who is the Lord praying for here? you and not the world not the world those he's called those he's adopted those he's predestined um, and then finally verse 24 would you mind hitting that one too while you're there 924. I'm sorry 17 1724 uh, I said it wrong 1724 please father I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So again, call love before the foundation of the world ultimately to be with the Father where? In heaven. In heaven, in glory. The church is the corporate gathering of those who've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. Um, read Colossians 1.13. They were transferred so that they are citizens of heaven and not of this world. Have you ever thought about why you hate the sin around you? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about, you know, stuff when kids are kidnapped or pedophiles and just the shootings and stuff? Do you, have you ever thought why that makes you angry and upset and why you hate it so much? 
Because it grates against the new nature. It grates against your saved nature. If it doesn't bother you, in all seriousness, examine your own salvation. If that stuff doesn't just cause a bit of uh, an arousal of uh, anger against the, the very sin, um, you might want to do a salvation temperature check. Um, Colossians 1.13 <clears throat> For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. From the domain of darkness, from the pit of hell, to light, to salvation, to eternity with Christ. How about Philippians 3.20 and then 1 Peter 2.11? For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Citizenship is where? In heaven. heaven. First Peter 2.11 Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So we have to ask ourselves, aliens and strangers. Aliens and strangers of what? This world. This world. Everything in the world. First John, we're told, we're warned. We're commanded, love not what? Things of the world. That's a hard thing. We live in a pagan society. I'm going to connect this. You're going to see this so clearly. You're going to see this so clearly in this lesson this morning. The establishment of the church during the Greco-Roman age was um, under Nero. Um, it was under, uh, you know, not 30 miles away from Jerusalem. People would go to another town to worship the god of Jupiter. Um, the, the, the people of the Lord, his church, who he was establishing at this time, those both Jews and Gentiles, were under constant pressure, under constant threat of being uh, persecuted, arrested, crucified, um, enslaved, and so on and so forth. And, and, uh, and in a city, or I'm sorry, in, a, in an area in Palestine that was promised to them, the very place that they were promised in, script, in prophecy, um, they're watching the degradation and the, the, the imposition of pagan culture. That's where we live today. In fact, many of the words that, are, that were absolute symbols of Hellenistic or Greco-Roman culture um, that had to do with military and specifically sports, we have kept today, and I'll show you this today. It's very, very much a part of our culture. Next week, we'll examine the church and the death of its cornerstone, Jesus Christ. In that lesson, we'll observe the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost, and we'll look at Acts 2. You don't have to go there now. I'm not going to have you go there. You can read ahead if you'd like. And, uh, and it was purchased by the crucified and risen Christ. So let's jump into the time period. I wanted to establish first again, or just remind us, what is the church? If we're studying church history, we got to know what it is. And so now you do, if you didn't. Christianity is the only major religion to have its central event as the humiliation of its God. No other, no other religion, no other major religion, um, not Buddha, not the Greek mythological gods, not, the, not any other religion, was the central event, the death, burial, and resurrection of its own God, of the center of whom we worship, the very God who saves us, saved us because of his death and resurrection. Let me talk about crucifixion. Crucifixion is a barbarous death. You, did, you already knew that. 
But what was it reserved for? It was it, in Roman culture. It was typically reserved for non-Roman citizens. That's important. There's a lot of prophecy that's fulfilled here. I'm not going to get into all of it. Um, but if you read Zechariah, you read Jeremiah, you read Daniel, there were certain conditions. There were things that had to happen to authenticate Christ being who he said he was. And he did that. He fulfilled everything. But crucifixion was reserved for agitators. It was reserved for pirates. It was reserved for slaves. Anytime you can throw pirates in a lesson, that's pretty good. <laughs> Let's be honest. I won't use any dumb jokes as I go here. Jewish law, all right, Jewish law cursed everyone who hangs on a tree. You know that verse. And the Roman statesman, Cicero, this is a guy who lived at this time, warned everyone, let the very name of the cross be far, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, in other words, don't get caught on the cross, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. Crucifixion was a public statement. I want you to understand this. Crucifixion, these people were crucified and left on public roads, on the side of roads, to be on display. They were, they were an example of Rome's rule. They were an example of the people under Rome's thumb. Don't cross Rome. If they had bumper stickers, it would have said, don't mess with Rome. You know where I stole that, right? You see what I did there? Don't mess with Texas. Don't mess with Rome. Really bad joke. Really dumb. The crucifixion process typically included whipping or scourging, and I want to explain this a little bit. All right, the whipping and scourging was not just the, the leather whip that, that we are familiar with. Um, it was usually a heavy-handled uh, whip. It had multiple leather straps. They would use shards of metal or shards of glass um, on the whip itself so that it didn't just penetrate the skin and, and, and leave a lashing, but it would tear off flesh. It would, it would literally, when the, when the leather or the, the material would come off the flesh, flesh would come off with it to the bone. It was a brutal, uh, brutal corporal punishment. And then it was, it was uh, sentenced to every culprit to carry the heavy crossbeam to the determined place of death in public. Oftentimes it was done where the crime itself was committed. Um, and it was, uh, it was, uh, and when it was raised, a notice, and I, I had to include this because you'll see the significance here, but when the cross itself was raised, a notice was pinned on the beam giving the culprit's name and crime. In other words, as part of the display above the human body that was hanging on the cross, it said his name, or hers, and it said their crime. I think it's very interesting. Do you remember what was on, it's there in your notes, what was written on Christ's cross? He was accused as being, it was the initials I-N-R-I, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Eudeorum, the King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. His crime, his sentence, 
his sentence by Pontius Pilate was for claiming that he was what? He was king. Remember, where is your kingdom? Where are your people? We'll get into that questioning here a little bit. Christ went through six illegal trials in under 24 hours. No witnesses. Um, I'll point this out here later today, Brian. Yeah, this just brings a lot of memories back to our trip to Israel. But, I bet. You know, we, we were there at the Via Dolorosa mm -hmm. for each station of the cross at Golgotha where mm -hmm. it, it just, it's real. Yep. I mean, it is, uh, he was, he was crucified. I mean, it was along the road. It wasn't even by the temple. I mean, where yep. it's just along the street. Yeah, and there's a lot of significance here to that place, to the you know, the road, the Via del Rosa, um, and Golgotha, the place of skulls. Um, there's there's a lot of prophecy um, and information that is needed in Scripture to identify Christ as being Christ. I want to point this out here. I'm going to get to this. You you need to understand something here about this time period and and even the very death and resurrection of Christ and the establishment of the church. Immediately, immediately, guys, not not seconds after this, there were heretical claims that Christ was just a revolutionary, um, heretical claims that he really wasn't trying to establish the church. He was really just trying to lead a revolt against Rome. There were heretical claims that um, that he was, you know, later on that he was just a, a, you know, a moral, ethical movement. Um, that he was not God, that he was just, you know, some spiritual aberration. Um, that we need to understand and, and have a very clear grounding, a clear foundation that uh, Christ is God. And he is the cornerstone of his church. And here I want to lay out a little bit of the heritage of Jesus. What was his own history? What was his life like? Well, here it was. Jesus was a Jew. Sounds, you're like, whoa, you had to put that in your notes? Like, we knew that. Well, he had to be. And he had to come from a certain line, didn't he? To be able to claim to king. Go through the lineage in Matthew 1. David. Exactly. Had to come through the line of David. Jesus was a Jew and he came from a Jewish family. Why is that important? He studied Jewish law and he observed the Jewish tradition. In fact, any serious study... You know, any in-depth study of Jesus' life makes it so clear that he's a Jew that many heretical teachings asked if Jesus ever intended to create the congregation of the followers, so-called the Ecclesia, the church. He, he was so immersed in, in Jewish culture and understanding of Jewish law that it, it, it had, was called into question, and we ought to ask this, did Jesus have anything to do with the formation of the church? Of course, we know the answer. Right? It's, it's emphatically yes. But if he did, how did he shape its special character? How did he form the church? We have to ask that. Scripture answers that. In fact, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, reveal Jesus' plan for a group of followers to carry on his work. What were those guys called? The disciples, the apostles. From approximately two years, I want you to think about this. Okay, we've had the, the, you know, the, the pleasure, the, the, the favor of having good teacher, you know, having good teaching on a rod, and 
uh, and other teachers in this church or other churches for you know a number of years. Imagine, imagine being taught by God, very God, Christ for two years. How what would that school be like? Pretty amazing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John revealed Jesus' plan for his followers, the disciples. For approximately two years, Christ worked with his hand-picked disciples and taught them about what he called the kingdom of God. And he introduced them to the new covenant. What have we been studying for over a year and a half with Rod? The kingdom. The kingdom. Here it is. This, is the, this was the force of Christ's ministry while he was on earth. He offered... A kingdom. Well, what does that mean? And who's going to live there? you got to have a kingdom, right? There's a king. There's ruler. And then you got to have what? <coughs> People. you got to have subjects. Well, who are those subjects? Jesus made a persistent point about the special kind of life that separated the kingdom of God from rival authorities among men. Little by little, because the disciples we saw, they were, you know, were pretty harsh on them, but they were kind of slow to recognize really, until after Christ's death, they came to understand that the following of Christ meant saying no to the other voices, calling for their loyalties. In this process, Jesus founded the church. So what was Palestine like? What was the promised land like in Jesus' day? we got to know that. That really helps us understand the roots of the church, the foundation of the church. It began in persecution, and guess what? It's going to end. In persecution, but you know the story. Who wins? Christ does, right? Skip ahead to Revelation. In Jesus' lifetime, Palestine was a crossroads of cultures and peoples. Its population was around 2 million. It's approximately 9 million around today, but proportionally, it's still about the same. Jews represented about half of the population of the time of Jesus. Um, at that point, it was ruled by Rome. This was after it was ruled by Greece. Uh, and before it was ruled by uh, uh, Constantine. Ruled by Rome, it was divided by region, it was divided by religion, and it was divided by politics. It was a very, very divided place. In about a day's walk, a person could travel from rural farming vi villages to bustling cities where people enjoyed the comforts of Roman citizenship. In Jerusalem itself, priests sacrificed to the Lord of Israel while in just a few miles away, 30 miles approximately, in a town called Sebast, um, pagan priests held rites in honor of the Roman god Jupiter, little g. Jews deeply resented and despised pagan culture existing in their homeland. I mean, you can imagine. I mean, how many generations, finally, they have their homeland, they're there, and now what are they occupied by? Some foreign... Um, awful, um, awful, oppressive government. Ironically, in the previous time period, the Hellenistic period, that led to the Roman Empire, brought with it a lingua franca. Now, there was always something in every age, always something in every age that God used in his master plan to preserve the church. I want you to see this. Today, there's, uh, there's, there's a concept in geography and in history called lingua franca. All that means is a dominant language. Today, the dominant language of the world is what? It's English. You can go to China, and they're going to know English. We, in this country, are pretty fortunate. 
Um, most people, uh, because of colonization and other things, um, we can sit here and speak English to each other. And most people who come to this nation have some English background. You can go just about anywhere in Europe, um, except in some you know, third world places, and most people are going to understand English. Well, hold your thought just one second. Um, but at the time of Christ, post-Greece, okay, the Greeks brought their lingua franca, or dominant language, which was Koine Greek. Have you heard that before? Koine Greek. Well, where did we, what important thing came out of this time period was the, it provided the Septuagint, which was the Greek or the common language, the common language of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint. Roger. Uh, Alexander the Great brought it into being, but yep. I was going to say that if you're an airline pilot anywhere in the world, yep. He has to speak English. Yeah, a lot of airlines require it. Yeah. Yep, there's a reason kind of why. Interesting. Yeah. It is. Very interesting. We live in a time period here now where the spread of the gospel should be the easiest all time. I mean, it should be. Why isn't it? We'll, we'll get to that too. Centuries earlier, okay, so through the Hellenistic period into the Roman Empire at the time of Christ, we had a common translation of the Greek um, Old Testament, or into Greek of the Old Testament. That's critical. That's really important. Um, there's a few reasons why here. I, I want to explain this. I didn't put this in my notes. But it's really important because remember when Christ entered into Jerusalem and he said and he wept. Remember this? You remember this statement he made? I know Roger does. Oh, Jerusalem, if you, yeah. <laughs> if you could have known, if you could've only right. knew. Yeah. And, and one of the important aspects of that statement is that they should have known. At this time period, there was um, enough, what do I want to say, um, spread, enough widespread knowledge through, uh, you know, through Koine Greek and through the devices of the time where people would have been able to have access or at least through scribes and, and others who could read and write and so forth would have had access to the knowledge that required them to know the time and place of Jesus' arrival. It's important. So centuries earlier, the prophets of Israel had promised a day when the Lord would deliver his people from their pagan rulers and establish his kingdom forever over the whole earth. On that day, the prophets said the Lord would send an anointed ruler called what? A Messiah. Right to a deliverer to bring an end to the corrupt world and replace it with an eternal paradise. So Daniel and other prophets explained that the Lord's kingdom would be established only after a final struggle between Satan and the Lord. It would end with destruction of the existing world order and creation of a kingdom without end. Now I'm paraphrasing a lot. Okay, a lot. And we've studied through Revelation, we've studied, you know, how it correlates to Daniel and the major prophets. Mm -hmm. um, but what the people were looking for and hoping for of Israel was a deliverer, a political deliverer. One who would establish his kingdom and rule on earth and lead into eternity future. Well, Christ is and was uh, the Messiah. This belief, along with the ideas uh, about the resurrection of the dead and the last judgment, was in Jesus' day very much a popular part of Jewish faith. 
They understood it. They knew it. Out of the distaste for life under the Romans, several factions arose. And I want you to see this. There's, there's a lot of significance here. There are four factions during Jesus' time. One are the Pharisees. You heard of those guys? Two are the Sadducees. You heard of those guys? They formed an alliance, but they actually hated each other. If there was ever politics, if there was, if there was ever a great example of like just politics, it's the Pharisees and Sadducees. We'll get there. You'll, you'll get a kick out of that. And then you had the Zealots, and then you had who were called the Essenes. This, these are, this is historical, and, uh, and it's even seen in, Bibli- in, uh, in Scripture as well. I want to point this out. So one of the chosen 12, and I didn't put this in your notes, but it's in, it's in the Gospels. It's also in Acts, was Simon the Zealot. He was called out of that, um, out of that faction to follow Christ. He... he the zealots, and I'll get there. I'll just do, just do this. I'll just do this now. The Pharisees emphasized Jewish traditions. You know this. They emphasized practices that set them apart from pagan culture. They were the Orthodox Jew of the time. The, the Pharisee means separated ones, and they prided themselves on the strict observance of every detail of Jewish law. You know this. They had they had their written law. They had two. They had two. Um, what do I want to say? Two traditions. They had their written law, the Torah. And then they had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of what they called the oral law that they recorded. They added to the law constantly. Added to it. And they were really proud of it. And we saw that in the prayer, right? We saw that in uh, when the two men went into the temple. Remember this? In, in Matthew, the two men go into the temple. And one is praying. The Pharisee is praying. And he's praying. Remember? He's praying, I'm so glad that I'm not like... What? This tax collector here and basically there's this proud and arrogant prayer and then of course the tax collector comes in and he lows his head and he prays Lord forgive me right the wretched sinner that I am and Jesus clarifies this later and says one of these men men went home justified which one was it the tax collector all right let me finish the Sadducees Zealots and Essenes, and then we'll, we'll jam and get across the hallway there. Sadducees, who are these guys? These were the Jerusalem's aristocracy, the highfalutin. They were from a small group of wealthy, pedigreed families, and, they came, uh, and from them came the high priest and the lesser priests of the temple. Interesting. Interesting. Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple. What was going on in the temple? Remember this? They were, it was a den of what? Robbery and thieves and selling and making money. And who controlled it? The Sadducees. The very ones who are padding their pockets. Interesting. Man. The Sadducees found Roman rule advantageous. Well, I wonder why. Because they were represented by a conservative political group called the Sanhedrin. You know those guys. Condemned Christ. Remember? All right, many of them enjoyed sophisticated manners of fashions and Greco-Roman culture, and some even took Greek names. Pathetic. They had little influence among the common people. I wonder why. Then there was the Zealots. This was a small faction bent on armed resistance toward Roman rule over the Promised Land. They looked back two centuries. They really followed what a group of people called the Maccabees uh, with religious zeal combined with a ready sword to overthrow Greek overlords. 
They held a small numbers of guerrilla forces, primarily in the hills of Galilee, and they were ready to ignite a revolt against Roman authority anytime they could in Palestine. Then finally, there was a group called the Essenes. This is the majority of common Jews who had no interest in politics or warfare. Instead, they withdrew to the Judean wilderness where they lived in a monastic community, in other words, just a, a focused community of studiers and followers, and they studied scriptures and prepared themselves for the Lord's kingdom. Jesus began his ministry with these people. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, the Essenes were very interesting. They were yep. at Qumran. Yep. And were the cave where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and also yep. at Masada where we went. And uh, very interesting. Yep. They just excluded themselves from society, and they didn't want any part of the Romans. Right. And they were just a whole sect. By we'll pick this up next time. And Jesus begins his ministry with these people because their concern was to, they thought, all right, if we don't revolt, if we don't aggravate Rome, if we kind of live peacefully, go about our work, they'll let us continue to worship God. Um, and that was the mindset. And it's really interesting when, Rome, when Paul writes Romans, and we'll get to this, there are a lot of these themes um, that are included in his writings in Romans 2 and 3 and 13. And of course, Romans 13 is the major chapter that we have on the believer's relationship to what? Government. We'll get there. So Jesus' ministry next week, we'll look at this, and then the, and then the final week of his life, um, we'll, we'll get to that next time. I want to scroll down to this. I put this in here just so you could see kind of a, a really rudimentary basic timeline of this time period. It really begins at zero with the birth of Christ, and you have about 32 years later or so, the death of Christ, and then you have the first Christian martyr. We're going to talk a little bit about Stephen and the importance of that and the importance of his life to the church. And then about, it, that's just about, I, I want to say about 40 um, about 48, uh, in, in year about 40. And then you have Nero. We're going to talk about this guy. Um, he was not a nice guy. And then you have the death of Paul. Tradition has it that, in Paul's very words in Romans, that the government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. Remember? Remember he writes this? Guess what tradition says that Paul probably dies by? He's beheaded by a sword. As were a couple of the other disciples. We'll talk about that. And then finally, we'll talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, the diaspora, the spreading out. So James, his apostles, and how that had an influence on the establishment of the church. Let me just tell you this. Um, we live in a very, very calm age. We live in an age where we are able to go across the street and minister to someone, share the gospel. You can take your written word. You can give them a copy of the Bible. It's not illegal. Um, and I think we should do it. Any questions or comments before I pray and we get out? All right, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are grateful for your church. We love your church, Lord. We love it because we love you. We look forward this morning to worshiping you in, in spirit and truth. We look forward to singing to our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to have a good understanding of what your church is and, and how it was established. Help us to understand our part in it. Um, Lord, help us to be good citizens in this church, in your church, and uh, help us to follow the great example of Christ, the cornerstone of the church. We thank you so much for the salvation that we have in Christ. 
Uh, help us now to walk in a manner worthy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.